This week's parasha covers story or a, a specific element of the story that's one of my favorite stories in Torah. Uh, not because it's necessarily a good feeling story, but um, there's a lot of depth. There's a lot. There's a lot to be learned from from the story. And the Rebbe spoke about this on numerous occasions. And always, you know, dealing with it from a different angle. And I think in today's today's talk, the sikha that we're going to be learning today, the Rebbe deals with the story, which we'll get to in a second, from a very practical and simple angle um, that illuminates uh, some some very special things about this story. So, the story we're talking about is the story of the tablets. More specifically, the first tablets, the fact that Moses broke them. Um, it was not necessarily a high point for the Jewish people. There was a reason why Moses broke them, which did not, did not reflect very well on the Jewish people's behavior at the time. However, what brought him to break these tablets is one of the most enduring illustrations of, uh, number one, uh, Moshe's, Moshe's leadership, his dedication to the Jewish people, and also how... Uh, how crucial the Jewish people are in general to the point that no matter what they're doing, uh, there's always going to be someone that's going to make the case that preserving the Jewish people is the most important thing. Um, not necessarily at the expense of all else, but on the contrary, preserving the Jewish people is actually what preserves Torah and what preserves everything else as well. All right, so instead of you know going around the story, let's just dive right into it. So Parashas Ekev is the third parasha in the book of Deuteronomy, which we said is like um, it's a long speech that Moses gave before his passing. And in this speech, in this talk to the Jewish people, he reviews their 40-year you know, history, their 40-year journey in the desert, which was quite eventful. And um, last week he, he, he repeated to them, he reviewed with them the story of Sinai, and this week he reviews with them the story that happened about 40 days later, which was the, the fact that they built the golden calf, served the golden calf, and as a result, when Moses came down with the two tablets, he, uh, he destroyed them. He broke them. All right, so let's go straight into page three, source number one. So this is all in Moshe's own words, right? Obviously, it's not Moshe's words, it's God's words, but the way they are being communicated through Moshe, he's speaking in first person. Ba'aloisi, when I ascended the mountain to receive the stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant that God made with you, I remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So it's right after the 6th of Sivan, which was the day of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, the revelation at Sinai. So Moshe Rabbeinu went up onto the mountain to receive the tablets. I neither ate bread nor drank water, and God gave me the two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God on which he were engraved. All the words that the Lord spoke with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. But then, after 40 days, then God said to me, then, just a moment. I apologize. Um, but then God said to me, arise. Descend quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from the path I commanded them to follow. They have made for themselves a molten calf. So I turned and came down from the mountain. The mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. I saw that you had sinned against God, your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf. You were indeed quick to turn away from the path which God had commanded you to follow. So I grasped the two tablets and hurled them from my two hands, shattering them before your eyes. Okay. Now, the enduring question is always, why did Moshe Rabbeinu break those tablets? Uh, one of the worst answers I've ever heard was he had anger issues. Oh, man, please, please, anger issues. People like me and you, when we're angry, we don't break stuff like that. You know, we might we might take a cell phone and break it, but you know what? A cell phone is easily replaceable. You know what these two tablets were? These two tablets were not not just not just expensive sapphire. The tablets themselves were made by God. In the Prekea vote, the Mishnah enumerates ten things that were created a split second before the first Shabbat started. Okay? So the story of 
of the six days of creation, God created everything. You know, the first day created light, and the second day created the sky. Move on, on, on. Comes Friday, God created all the animals, and then people created Adam and then Eve, whatever, and the whole story happened, right? And 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 we're told in the Torah that you know, like Adam, you know, he's the crown of creation, and therefore he was created last. Comes the Mishnah and tells us there were ten things that were created a split second before Shabbat started. What type of stuff? You guessed it, miraculous stuff. For example. Um, the donkey that spoke to Bilam, that was created then. Um, donkeys don't speak. That donkey did speak. The mouth that swallowed up Korach, that, that, the manna, the manna, the, the bread from heaven, that was that was created then. You know what else was created then? The staff with, with which Moses, you know, hit the waters and they split. Aaron hit the waters and they turned into blood. I mean, the staff did a lot of stuff, right? Miraculous things. One of those things were the stones in which the Ten Commandments were engraved the first time. Okay? Moshe was well aware of what he was holding. He was holding something that doesn't exist in the rest of the world. He was just gifted by God stones, tablets that had the Ten Commandments. Mind you, holier than a Torah scroll. When was the last time you saw anyone who was angry and took a Torah scroll and threw it on the ground? Nazis. Nazis throw Torahs on the ground. Anti-Semitic punks that are coming to do a pogrom in a, in a synagogue, those are the people that throw Torahs on the ground, let alone destroy them, right? When was the last time you saw a rabbit because he was upset, he took the Torah and threw it on the ground. Are you crazy? And we're talking here about Moses. Moshe <laughs> Rabbeinu. To take those tablets and throw them on the ground because he was angry? Pathetic. That, that's just a total cop-out and such a pathetic thing to say. No, he wasn't angry. Forget about that angry thing. In fact, it doesn't say, he doesn't say that I was, he was angry. He said, I saw what you guys did. And so I hurled them from my hands and they shattered before your eyes. So what's going on? So the Medrash tells us an interesting thing. Source number two. When God initially gave the tablets to Moses, they miraculously carried their own weight. These things were heavy. They were very, very heavy. So how was Moses able to carry them? They carried themselves. It was a miracle. You wonder how that miracle happened. The whole idea of the tablets was a miracle. The fact that the words were engraved in those tablets was miraculous. Because the engraving was not like the engraving that we do on regular stones or diamonds. Where you only go a little bit in, you carve out the shape of the, of the letter. The, the wording, the, the text that was seen on the tablets, the, ta the tablets were, were perfect squares. Six, six tfachim, tfachim is a handbreadth. So they, were, they measured six handbreadths by six handbreadths. Right? So there, was these, there were blocks. And you were able to see the text from all directions. Okay? Or at least from one side or the next side. You were able to read it right to left. Usually when you carve something through and through, on one side, you can read it right to left. Another side, you can read it left to right. For example, those that are watching me in the screen, you actually don't see um, the exact way how I am. I'm moving my right hand, but to you, it looks like my left hand. Anyway, the point is very simple. The entire concept of these luchais, um, these, uh, these, these tablets, it was one big miracle. And one of the miracles was that these huge, very heavy tablets were being held by one person, by Moses. And the Medrash tells us they're actually carrying their own weight. Once Moses descended, approached the camp and saw the idol. Now listen to this. The letters flew off the tablets. And the tablets suddenly became heavy. Immediately, Moses became angry and threw them down. Oh, so this changes the story. Something happened to the tablets. And the tablets because they lost the letters. We'll have to see what that means. But it says the letters flew away. So when Moses saw the letters fly away, they became extremely heavy. And Moses, when he saw what they did, he threw them down. He actually uses the term, af, he became angry. Um, I just want to point out that af in Hebrew is not the typical word that we use in Hebrew to describe anger. What's the word that we use, Amit? Kas, kas means he's angry. Roges, right? Someone's brig is 
It means he's angry. Here's a Vayichar Af. The same term that's used to describe God's anger. Does God have anger issues? Let's put it this way. If God has anger issues, then Moses has anger issues. The same anger issues God has, that's what Moses has. God doesn't have anger issues, and Moses doesn't have anger issues. There was something at play here. Something was going on. And we have to see what, what was going on. All righty. So page four, the Rebbe. The tablets that were broken were the first set that were crafted by God. The tablets themselves. Unlike the second set, which was crafted by Moses, as the verse says, carve out yourself two stone tablets. So afterwards, when Moses asked God for forgiveness on behalf of the Jewish people, and God said, okay, now we have to replace the tablets, God told Moses, I gave you tablets in the beginning. Now you're going to have to provide tablets. Tell him to dig under his tent, and he, he found the sapphire, and he told him to carve it out properly. Um, I imagine they were the same size as the first tablets. And then Moses brought those tablets up to the mountain, and God inscribed the Ten Commandments in the second set. But the first one was made by God. This is explicit in the Torah, as even the five-year-old student knows, that the tablets, the first ones, were God's work. <clears throat> after this, after God made the tablets, the inscription of the Ten Commandments was engraved onto the tablets. The inscription was God's. Even on the second tablets, the inscription was engraved by God. And this is all the more true regarding the first tablets, which were given before the sin of the golden calf. In other words, when God decided to inscribe the Ten Commandments, he didn't suffice with tablets made from expensive materials, such as sapphire. Rather, he made a special creation of tablets that were God's work, worthy of containing God's inscription of the Ten Commandments. These tablets were greater than everything created during the six days of creation, evidenced by the fact that they were created on Friday evening, well, Friday evening of the creation week, as the commentaries on the Mishnah explain, it was Bein Hashmoshes. Bein Hashmoshes means the exact split millisecond before Shabbos began. That's when, um, that's when God created these ten things. And one of these ten things was were the tablets themselves, the actual you know, stones. This raises the question: Why did Moses break the tablets? It's true that when they were broken, the letters of the Ten Commandments flew off the stone, so they no longer possessed. <clears throat> the quality of God's inscription. But they still had the greatest quality of all, that they were God's hand. In general, there's, there's, you know, the Medrash deals with a very important issue. That is, Moses was doing a serious sin by breaking the tablets. Um, the third mitzvah, sorry, no, it's not there. Forget it. Anyway, one of the mitzvahs in the Torah is that when it comes to idolatry, you have to destroy idolatry, right? Destroy the idols, destroy all of their, all of their uh, altars and things like that. You're not allowed to do that for anything that is divine. You're not allowed to destroy God's altar. You're not allowed to destroy anything from God's temple. And one of the things you're not allowed to destroy is you're not allowed to destroy God's name, right? The Yudke Vavke and other, the other names of God. So it's a grave sin. One of the gravest sins is to destroy one of the names of God. Therefore, if you have a paper that has God's name, you're not allowed to throw up the garbage. Now to deface it, now to erase it, now to rip it. So when Moses breaks the tablets, what's happening now? All these letters are being broken up. So the Medrash says that letters flew away. Okay, so if you want to say the letters flew away, so now there's no problem with breaking the tablets. There's no technical sin of breaking the tablets. But hey, the tablets themselves, those were mighty divine. Those were mighty holy pieces. And here... Here he's breaking them. What's going on? In other words, right now we're coming with the perspective that we're translating the words of the Medrash, that the letters flew away for understanding it literally. And now they're, they're, they're empty slabs. They're, they're clean, clean slates. And Moses took these slates and he broke them. Now that itself is a problem. This is a gift to you from God. What are you breaking God's hand? Who, who allowed you to break it? What's going on? Um, now, I'm sure you've heard this from me. I mean, to tell me if you heard this. Rashi, at the story of the, of, the, of the golden calf, he gives a whole explanation of what happened here. Why did Moses destroy the tablets? Because he gives a whole story. Right? You know what? Let's read it in the sources. Let, let's continue here. On the words of the verse, and Moses flung the tablets from his hands, Rashi comments. Moses said to himself, 
if regarding the individual mitzvah of Pesach, right, Paschal life, the Torah says no one from a foreign nation should partake of it. You have to be Jewish in order to participate in the carbon Pesach in the Paschal life. This is certainly true regarding the entire Torah. Now, Ben Nechar could mean someone that's not Jewish. It could also mean someone who has, you know, converted to a different religion, who has basically sold his soul to serve idols. It's called a mumar. So this is certainly true regarding the entire Torah. All the Jewish people are like heretics now. How can I give it to them? Okay. So Rashi is telling us that why did Moses break the tablets? Because he didn't want to give it to them. I understand. That's a reason to break them. Just put it in your own safe in the bank. Hide it from them, right? Yet even if the tablets cannot be given to the Jewish people, this isn't the reason to break them. So this is why Rashi continues to explain. Moses' breaking of the tablets was like a bride's advocate tearing up the marriage contract. So let's see, let's see the story of the advocate, the bride, and all of that. So let's go to page six. Rashi, Rashi explains this right away when we learn the story of the, of the golden calf. This can be compared to a king who went abroad and left his betrothed with the maids. Because of the immoral behavior of the maids, she acquired a bad reputation. In other words, uh, word came back to the king that uh, some, some uh, bad business has been going around. Uh, her advocate arose and tore up her marriage contract. In other words, if she's married to the king and she was disloyal, so she deserves the worst punishment possible. So he uh, got rid of the evidence that they were even married in the first place. Um, he said, if the king decides to kill her, I will say to him, she is not yet your wife. So at the very least, at least it delayed the king's decision with regard to his alleged wife, regarding her alleged misconduct. Uh, the king investigated and discovered that only the maids were guilty of immoral behavior. He was therefore reconciled with her, and her advocate said to him, write her another marriage contract, because the first one was torn up. The king replied to him, you tore it up. Go buy yourself another sheet of paper, and I will write it for her in my own handwriting. Rashi explains, the king in the parable represents God. The maids represent the mixed multitude, the Erev Rav. Those that had joined, they had like kind of uh, latched onto the Jewish people as they left Egypt. They weren't Jews. They, they, you know, they were converting to Judaism, but like not necessarily for the right reason. They were just latching on. It's a whole multitude of Egyptians and other nations and nationalities that joined them. And they actually became a, a, a major nuisance throughout the time that they were in the desert. They were the ones that actually uh, made that golden calf, and they were the ones that convinced the Jewish people to, to serve it, etc. The advocate is Moses, and the betrothed is the Jewish people. This is why the verse says, carve for yourself. Moses had the marriage contract. In the marriage contract, in the two tablets, on the, in the, the part of the Ten Commandments is, we should not have any other gods. We pledged uh, exclusivity to God. We're only going to serve God. We're not going to serve any other idols. So Moses has the marriage contract, and here he sees the Jewish people were disloyal. He smashed the marriage contract. They did a bit of investigation, and they realized, whatever, there's, there's ways of how to spin the story. And they really, it wasn't really them. They, they were kind of coerced into it. They were, they were convinced to do it by others. So now God is reconciled with the Jewish people, and Moses says, no, let's have another set of tablets. And God tells Moses, you go and get, you get the, new, the new tablets, and I'm going to inscribe the Ten Commandments into the tablets, right? Now, Great story, right? Moses had to break the tablets in order to get rid of the evidence that, that we have this pledge of exclusivity to God. So here's the, the problem is this. What does the Medrash say? Why did Moses break the tablets? Because when he saw the Jewish people sitting with the golden calf, the letters flew away. Oh, so now the Rebbe asks a very obvious question. Page six on the bottom. Seemingly, according to this explanation, it can be that the letters flew off the tablets before they were broken. Had the letters flown off, the tablets would have been clean, been a clean slate. Without the words, you should have no other gods. In other words, the fact that the letters flew off took care of the marriage contract problem. That's why they have to break them. In this case, they wouldn't be like a marriage contract and there would be no need to break them. Good question. So, so we've got some serious questions here. One is, 
if the letters flew off. So first of all, in other words, all your rationalities to break the tablets are gone. And by the way, breaking the tablets is no simple matter. This is like some real majestic, miraculous type of creation that was just gifted to Moses. What are you breaking you? Um, okay. <coughs> so that I was going to learn this. I'm just going to give a little brief overview. And that is the letters didn't actually fly away. The letters did not fly away. Why, why can't we say that the letters didn't fly away? Why can't we say that they did? What type of letters can fly away? They're not written on stone. They weren't written. They were engraved. Parchment, ink on parchment can be erased, can be detached can be washed away, could fly away, whatever, <laughs> right? There, you know, there's something added onto the parchment and it could kind of fly away miraculously or whatever. But on the, the two tablets, the Ten Commandments were not written onto the two tablets. They weren't, you know, it, it wasn't ink on the tablets. They were engraved in the tablets. What would it take for an olive to fly away from the tablet. You're saying we'd have to fill up with rock, huh? We'd have to fill up with sapphire. You, have to, you, you want to fill it up with cement. Don't touch my sapphire with your cement, okay? <laughs> I mean, like, what, what, what's going on? What does it mean? They flew away. What could fly away? How could something that's part of the rock fly away? The rock itself flew away. It didn't. It was there and it was broken, right? Like, afterwards, he had to break it. So Rebbe says, the Medrash does not mean to say that when the letters flew away, there were no more letters left in the two tablets. You were still able to read what was in there. So, so what does it mean the letters flew away? What's, what's going on? We're rewriting stuff. We're not rewriting. We're just thinking more deeply into the meaning of the Medrash, into the meaning of the, of the words. All right, so page seven, the simple explanation for this is understandable even for the five-year-old student of scripture. As discussed a number of times, some things are so simple that they are simply missed. In our case, there is a simple question. The notion that the letters could fly off the tablets, yet the tablets would remain whole, is only possible if the letters were written like those of the Torah scroll in compartment, in which the case in which case the letters are a separate entity from the surface. But regarding the tablets, the Torah states clearly that the letters were engraved on the tablets. The letter Aleph, Nun, Chav, and Yud of the word Anoichi, which is the first letter of the two of, of, of the Ten Commandments, Anoichi, which means I, and all of the 620 letters of the Ten Commandments were engraved into the tablets. This raises the question, how is it possible for the letters to fly off while the tablets remained whole until they were broken later? The entire existence of the letters was only as part of the stone. So the whole concept of letters flying away doesn't even begin to make sense, even miraculously, because it goes counter to the story. The story is that until Moses threw them on the ground, the tablets were whole. But if the letters flew away, what happened to the tablets exactly? They filled up. How could these engraved letters fly? It cannot be argued that the letters flew off along with pieces of the stone they were engraved on. Such a detail isn't mentioned anywhere, and it is contrary to the straightforward meaning of the letters flew off, meaning that the letters departed, not the stone. So the stone remained. Whatever part of the stone was not part of letters was definitely there until Moses broke the tablets. So what's going on here? So page eight. The answer to this is clear even to the child from the continuation of the Medrash that when the letters flew off, the tablets became heavy in Moshe's hands. But what's the connection between letters flying off and tablets becoming heavy? What, what's the deal here? Here's the deal. The tablets themselves had to be heavy. 
because their size was six handbreadths by six handbreadths, as explained in the Talmud. This is anyway clear from the fact that a large surface space was necessary to fit all the words, and especially considering the fact that they needed to be visible on the top of the mountain to the entire Israelite camp. You're talking here about huge stones, right? That's clear. However, so, so how is it possible for Moses to hold that? However, the letters made the tablets like a living entity that carries its own weight. This is something that we have to, we have to think about a bit. And there's, there's some halachic rules that go into this. Uh, even a child knows that it's easier to carry a living thing than it is to carry an inanimate object. Uh, I mean, just a quick question. If you had a sheep, right? A sheep. And then you take that sheep and you kill it. Does it become heavier? Dead weight, right? That's what we call it. Dead weight. Just, just when something is alive, it carries itself. Life. Huh? If you're a baby, you can feel when you fell asleep. That's interesting. Okay. It mentions that when you're holding a baby, when the baby falls asleep, it's a bit heavier, right? Even though when he's asleep, he's very much alive. What you're saying is there's a certain, like, you know, slumpness or whatever it is. Um, the fact of the matter is, that, um, when it comes to the laws of Shabbos, this also comes into play. That sometimes if you're carrying a living person, there are certain scenarios where it would not be considered carrying. Whatever, I don't want to get into the details of that. The point is that when something is alive, it has the properties of carrying itself. Therefore, it is not as heavy. It's not dead weight. It's, it's, it's life. Even a child knows that it's easier to carry a living thing than it is to carry an inanimate object. The letters give life to the tablets. Like the soul gives life to the body and makes it lighter. If this is true about the human soul, it is all the more true about the divine inscription that was engraved on the tablets. Only when the letters flew off, did the tablets become heavy in Moshe's hands. This clarifies for us the meaning of the letters flew off. It doesn't refer to the actual substance of the letters, but to their life force. The letters have a meaning. They have a message being communicated through these letters. God is invested in these letters. This answers our question of how the tablets could remain after the letters engraved on them had flown off. The material of the tablets and the substance of the letters remained complete. What flew off was the life force of the letters as a divine inscription. What Moshe was witnessing was not something that necessarily you and I can witness. When he was carrying the tablets, he felt that they were living organisms. They were alive. They were divine. And therefore, they weren't heavy to hold. Just thought of something. It's interesting. It's a little bit of an anecdote. It was in the early 50s by a Fabrengen, and the Rebbe asked someone to bring over a, 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 Talmud, a book of Talmud. Have you ever seen a book of Talmud? They're heavy. There's a very heavy tomes, heavy books. So they handed it to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe opened it up. The Rebbe wanted to say something, quote something from there. And then the Rebbe closed it and kept on holding it in his hand. At least that's what it says in the diaries. He kept on holding it in his hand. It's a heavy book. It's not, you know. And the Rebbe was continuing to speak. The Rebbe wasn't a youngster. It was 50 years old by then. It's pretty young, but it's not, you know. Anyway, the point is, you know, the, the, some of the chassidim were uncomfortable seeing the Rebbe holding this tome of Talmud while he's speaking. So one or two of them tried to, like, come closer to take away the book from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said, for a Rebbe, Torah is not heavy. That was the Rebbe's, it was a very unique type of fabrengen. It wasn't the usual. But the Rebbe's comment to the person was, for a Rebbe, Torah is not heavy. Was ever saying that he doesn't feel the weight of the book. But the, the point is, Torah is life. The life isn't heavy. For Moshe Rabbeinu, for Moses, holding the tablets that were given to him by God and the inscription of the letters, and that was God's word and God's, there they, they were, they were such divine living organisms. But when they saw the Jewish people sin, 
the life in these letters flew away. The letters themselves didn't fly away. They can't. The actual letters cannot fly away. They're part of the stone. If the letters fly away, parts of the stone fly away. So then Moses isn't, one that isn't the one that broke the stone. The letters were already, whatever, the flying letters already broke away the stone. Right? So it, it, was, it was the divine. It was, in other words, once, the, once he saw the Jewish people sinning, this no longer was a divine inscription. It was dead weight. Based on the above, that only the quality of the divine inscription was removed, but the substance of the letters remained, it is possible for the attribute of severity to argue that the letters, I am your God and not of any other gods, are still present, albeit without the quality of being a divine inscription. But they're still there. The marriage contract is still intact. Right? The evidence against, the incriminating evidence against the Jewish people is still there. So what does Moses have to do? Moses therefore had to break the tablets, as in the parable from the bride's advocate, who ripped up the marriage contract to spare the betrothed woman from punishment. Fine. Okay. I thought that was pretty cool, actually. <laughs> like, you know, we're, we're bringing in like these new elements, these new details to the story, which kind of throw the whole story into, you know, into, into a spin. Till now, we're like, okay, look, it's very simple. You know, Moses comes and he's holding the marriage contract. Let's get rid of the marriage contract. And that's that. Yeah. But there's another part of the story. The letters flew away. If the letters aren't there, why does it have to destroy it? And by the way, destroying it is no simple matter. <coughs> destroying it means, first of all, violating the, you know, the mitzvah of not destroying God's name. Besides for that, this is God's handiwork. And what's the answer? The letters didn't fly away. The life of the letters flew away. And once the life of the letters flew away, now like the, the, they themselves are like dead weight. And therefore, they want to just decompose. They want to break. They want to get rid of themselves. We'll see that soon in a second. But uh, fine. So here we have this idea that the letters that were inscribed in the, tab in the tablets are not simply inscriptions. They're not simply letters. They are divine life, which change the entire nature of the stones themselves. If beforehand these were divine stones, once they were inscribed with the Ten Commandments, they took on an entirely, an entirely different type of, of quality. Once they once the Ten Commandments were inscribed. So th this talk is from the, the 20th of Av. Chafav, which is the yard site of the Rebbe's father, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, who passed away. He was, he, was, he was arrested in 1939, and he was sent off to a very faraway place called Chile in Kazakhstan, um, really a no-man's land. He was there for about five years, and then finally, basically, he became very ill, and he ultimately passed away very nearby to that place uh, in the summer of 1944. So the Rebbe would have to bring him every year on his yard site, and this is from 1972. So now the Rebbe kind of takes a bit of a turn and uh, he's going to apply this whole lesson that we have from the, from the broken tablets, apply it to the concept of a yard site, the yard site of a tzaddik. So the Jerusalem Talmud tells us something very interesting. Rabbi Yudan said in the name of Rabbi Shalom, why was the story of Aaron's passing placed adjacent to that of Moses breaking the tablets. It's in this week's parasha. You know, while we're speaking about the story of the breaking of the tablets, we talk about the death of Aaron. They happened 39 years, 40 years apart, basically. 39 and a half years apart from each other. So why, why do you have to discuss it right next to each other? So the Talmud tells us to teach us that the passing of the righteous is as difficult for God as the breaking of the tablets. What's the connection? between break, broken tablets and the death of, of the tzaddik, of, of a righteous person. So here's the deal. Regarding death, page 10, even the young student knows that when the soul first leaves the body, the body is still complete. It is only later that the body disintegrates over time until even the perfectly righteous return to dust. Ultimately, even the perfectly righteous will return to dust. So I just want to elaborate on that for a moment. 
So the fact of the matter is when a person dies and they placed the ground, which is what should be done, right? They have to be buried according to the Jewish law. They're placed in a casket. So the natural order of things is, is that the body starts to decompose almost immediately. Um, the fact of the matter is, and I say this as a fact because people have seen this, uh, Sadikim, the truly righteous, do not decompose. They do not decompose. Um, this is told to us in the holy books, and people have seen this. There were, there were certain scenarios where uh, righteous people had to be you know, taken out and then moved for whatever reason. Uh, there was a situation, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, it's a very painful story, but the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe was, was buried in a cemetery, in a Jewish cemetery in Rostov. And then the Soviets decided they're going to build a highway through, I believe it was a highway. They're going to build a road on that, um, on that cemetery. So right away, Bechsidim sent a letter to the previous Rebbe who was already outside, was already out of the Soviet Union. And the previous Rebbe sent them uh, specific instructions of how to, of how to, move his father's body, how, how to move the grave to a different uh, cemetery. And the chassidim that were there, they, they said very clearly that every element of, you know, the, the, the casket and everything that was buried together with the Rebbe Rashab was, was exactly as the day when he was buried. Um, and, then, and that's not the only story. There are many other stories of people that have seen this. Tzadikim, their body just does not decompose. There's an explanation for it. Um, However, the Talmud tells us that the moment before the resurrection of the dead, when Mashiach will come, everyone's body, even the bodies of Sadiqim, are going to decompose and return to the dust, and then they're going to come back to life. So the fact of the matter is that the ultimate uh, destiny of everybody, even the body of the very righteous, is to decompose, return to dust, and then there's going to be Tchias HaMesim. But for most people, it decomposes almost immediately, and it's a gradual, you know, just decomposes almost immediately. So, um, since Rashi compares the death of the righteous, is it Rashi or the Talmud? Since um, the Talmud compares, or maybe Rashi actually does, Rashi, uh, Rashi says it's also in this expression. Since Rashi compares the death of the righteous to the breaking of the tablets, this means that the same order held true for the breaking of the tablets. First, the life force departed from the letters on the tablets, like the soul departing the body, but the material of the tablets remained, just as the body remains after the soul departs it. Only afterwards were the tablets themselves broken by Moses, just as the body disintegrates sometime after the soul leaves it. Okay, so we're, like, we're kind of, we're setting up the analogy here. Um, there, a body is a body and a soul. Can you pinpoint the soul? Does the soul have a weight? Does the soul have a specific place where it is? And the answer is no. The soul is that animating force of the body. And when a person passes away, the soul leaves. The body is still there, just like when it was alive. It's heavier, but it's still there. Nothing changed in the actual body. And ultimately, it decomposes. It, it, it just you know, it, it, it does not retain its existence. The same thing happened to the two tablets. The two tablets, they had, you know, the word of God inscribed in them, the Ten Commandments. And these letters were the life of the two tablets. They animated the two tablets. They made them lighter. But then the soul left. The life in these, in these letters left. They flew away, leaving the two tablets intact, exactly as they were a moment earlier with the same letters in them, but these letters were dead weight now. And then what happens? When something loses its life, it ultimately gets destroyed. The two tablets were destroyed. Okay. Now, here, we're going to take this, uh, like we're going to escalate things a bit. What's the, what's the obvious argument? These two tablets, even before they had letters in them, they were holy, they were divine, they were God's handiwork, they were so holy, so miraculous, that they could not be created in the regular order of things in the six days of creation. They were created a split second before Shabbos started. They were created at the same time that the, that the staff and, and the shamir, the special uh, uh, stone-cutting worm that was used in the Holy Temple. I mean, this, this is an amazing piece of work. Why, why should they be destroyed? Just because the letters left? Even if the letters left, even if the life of the letters left, the stones are still God's handiwork. 
they're still wonderful, beautiful stones. The same argument can be applied to the body. Just because the soul left, why should the body decompose? The body is so special. God chose the body. That there should be a Jewish body, a body that's going to eat matzah, is going to shake a lulav and worth filling, and give charity and eat kosher. The body is so special. Just because the soul left, the body has to decompose. The body has to lose its will to live, so to speak. The body has to lose its will to be in, in, in existence. So based on this explanation, the Rashi accepts as the simple meaning of the verses that the letters flew off, we can answer another question. In other words, Rashi definitely accepts the idea that the letters themselves remained. It was just the life of the letters that left. So now we can apply it to the whole idea of life and, um, and afterlife. When the young student learns that Moshe broke the tablets, he has a question. Even if Moshe couldn't bring, give the tablets to the Jewish people because of the comparison to the pace of sacrifice, and no foreigner should eat from it, who gave him permission to break the tablets? And, one second. I'm sorry, okay. This, it, this isn't just a logical question. It is also difficult based on the verse, you shall utterly destroy, you shall tear down their altars, destroy their name from that place. You shall not do so to your God. As Rashi comments, this is a prohibition against erasing God's name or removing a stone from the altar. If so, how was Moses allowed to break tablets that were even holier than a Torah scroll? It could have been suggested that it was indeed forbidden to break the tablets. Moshe's doing so was an act of self-sacrifice on behalf of the Jewish people to break the tablets that serve as a marriage contract between the Jewish people and God, so they wouldn't be punished. But based on the above, that Rashi explains on the simple level of scripture, that the letters flew off the stone, it is clear that Moshe saw that God had already begun breaking tablets by withdrawing the life force of the letters, which were the main part of the tablets, God's inscription. Moshe therefore continued and broke the tablets themselves, and God indeed thanked him for breaking them. So here, so in other words, Moshe was not initiating the breaking of the tablets. God already killed the tablets. <laughs> he already took away their soul. He took away their, their life. So Moshe just continued the work. Um, let's continue here for a moment uh, on page 12. Simple question. There were 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60. There were women. There was about 3 million Jews there. How many Jews actually sinned with the golden calf? The fact of the matter is that the women did not. So it's already half the Jewish population did not sin. Um, also, the, the, the amount that were found guilty of doing so willingly, etc., was 3,000. 3,000 out of 3 million is how much? What's the percentage? 1%. I don't even think it's 1%. 3,000 to 3 million is 1%? Yeah. All right. I'll leave it to the mathematicians to figure out. Maybe even less than that. 30,000. No, it's not even half a percent. It's, it's a tenth of a percent. Maybe, I don't know, uh, maybe, uh, whatever. The point is, no, three million. You have three million ah, Jews and you have 3,000 were found guilty of serving the idol, right? Let's see, let's see how they're having, but the explanation that breaking of the tablets was like tearing up a marriage document is insufficient. Regarding the sin of the golden calf, Rashi explains that there were different categories among the sinners. Those that sinned before witnesses and after being warned were executed by sword and those that sinned before witnesses but with no warning. However, aside from these people, the vast majority of the Jewish people didn't sin with the golden calf. This is certainly true about the Jewish women, about whom the Medrash says that when Aaron asked, remove your wives' golden earrings, the women refused to give them. As the verse says, and all of the people removed the golden rings from their ears, specifying only from their ears and not their wives' ears. Basically, Aaron was trying to, um, he was trying to stall. So he said, give me your wife's earrings. You know that the ladies wouldn't give away the earrings so, so willingly. So at least it would delay things. The fact is, when they came to the wives and demanded that the wives should give their ears, they said, for, for an idol? No way. That's not, we're not doing that. So the men gave their own earrings. The men were wearing earrings in those days. So they gave their own. So the fact of the matter is that all the women did not do it, right? Uh, so let's go to page 13 on the bottom. For those people that sinned with the golden calf, there was a need to break the tablets so that God shouldn't be able to argue that they violated the commandment, you shall not have any other gods. But what was the reason for breaking the tablets as it relates to the majority of the Jewish people who did not sin with the golden calf, right? 
why should they be destroyed? This is especially difficult from page 14. This is especially difficult considering that the tablets were given to each and every Jew individually, as is clear from the fact that the commandments were delivered in the singular form. I am your God who took you out of Egypt. You shall not have any other gods. Uh, in English, it doesn't really make a difference. You could be singular, it could also be plural. But in the Hebrew, Hashem Aleikecho means to you as an individual. If it was to a bunch of people together, you would say Hashem Aleikechem, which is talking to a crowd. But here it was said in the singular form. Yet nevertheless, Moses broke not only the tablets of the sinners, but of each and every one of the Jewish people who didn't take part in the sin. The vast majority of Jewish people can come to Meshach Rabbeinu and say, you stole our tablets from us. You didn't have to destroy it. As mentioned, even after the letters flew off and the quality of the divine inscription was removed, the tablets still retained the quality of being God's handiwork. And the Jews could say, hey, where's, where's my gift? Where's, where's the, where are these stones that were God's handiwork? It's a good question, I think. This is what the Medrash is explaining when it continues and says, that after the letters flew off the tablets, the tablets became heavy in Moshe's hands and were broken. Notwithstanding the great and unparalleled quality of the tablets themselves, God's handiwork, even without the letters, after the Ten Commandments were engraved into the tablets, they together became one, even greater unit. So you have the actual stones that God made. Amazing. But then he engraved the Ten Commandments into these stones. Now they're no longer two stones. Now they're two stones with Ten Commandments. Whole different story. They graduated from being stones, God's stones. Now they became habris, the stones, the slabs, the you know, of the covenant. They became host to the Ten Commandments. As a result, when the letters flew off, the tablets couldn't bear it. And after they had already tasted the greatness of being one unit with the Ten Commandments, they were unwilling to return to their previous state as just God's handiwork. The tablets felt that their present state after the letters had disappeared was insignificant. It wasn't worth being tablets without having the inscription. Before they had the inscription, they could run around and pat themselves on the back and say, we're God's handiwork, we're the special tablets that were created a split second before Shabbos started, before the first Shabbos started. But once they were once the Ten Commandments were engraved into them, and they were Luchai Sabris, they were the, the tablets of the covenant, once they lost that, once the, the, the life of, the, of, of these letters flew away, the tablets aren't happy just being tablets. The fact that the letters flew off the tablets <clears throat> caused in them a spiritual brokenness which was expressed by them becoming heavy. This resulted in the physical breaking of the tablets. Moshe was unable to hold them. He flung them from his hands, and they broke. So we asked, one second, why shouldn't the Jews get tablets, stones that God made? And the answer is, after these stones had already had the Ten Commandments in them, living Ten Commandments, which made them one living organism, divine organism, now, they, they can't just revert back to being just expensive, beautiful stones. They're broken. They're done. And therefore, they are dead, and they were broken. That's it. There was nothing to give to the Jewish people. Because once they had reached a higher level, regressing to their original level wasn't an option. Regressing meant destruction. Based on the above, we can understand how the passing of the righteous causes the body to break, similar to the tablets. Why is it that after death, the body decomposes? Even completely righteous people return to dust after their death. Why is this necessary? True, after death, the body no longer possesses the quality of the soul, but it still possesses the quality that it was chosen by God, and God's choice is eternal. Why then does the body need to disintegrate? We're talking here about a body that did mitzvahs. And by the way, the soul could not do the mitzvah on its own. The only way the soul could wear tefillin is if it's in a body. The only way you can eat kosher, the only way you can eat matzah on Pesach, and shake a lulav on sukkahs, is if it's in the body. So just because the soul went to heaven, why should the body 
be destroyed? Why should the body decompose? The explanation for this follows the same lines discussed regarding the breaking of tablets. Once the tablets experience the added quality of carrying the letters of the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> sorry, engraved into them, when this quality is taken away, they are now insignificant. Similarly, regarding the Jewish body, although the body itself has the quality of being chosen by God, after it has tasted the elevation it achieved as a result of its unification with the soul, enabling it to observe fair and mitzvah at every moment, the body becomes meaningless when the soul leaves and it loses its quality. This is why its material existence disintegrates. To clarify, the body shouldn't be destroyed by us. The body still retains the unique quality that it is the body that, it, that was alive. And therefore, we have to respect that body. And as we learned uh, earlier this last winter, uh, that even after death, the body retains a certain element of life. However, eventually the body itself decomposes. The body self-destructs. Why? Because being without a soul, quote-unquote, is not worth living. It's not worth being around. Once it has tasted the tremendous elevation of the one with the soul, regressing back to the original, to its original properties is not an option. And therefore, it just it, it loses its purpose and therefore it disintegrates. Uh, what's a lesson that we can learn from this? That as we mature and as we grow, we can't allow ourselves to regress. Regressing is not an option. We have to constantly grow. Now, when a person feels that they're in regression, so first of all, there's different ways of how to do it. First of all, get out of regression, start to mature, start to grow. And sometimes falling is part of the next leap, is part of the next growth. You know, never, never um, misinterpret regression with, uh, for example, you know, a little seed, when you put it into the ground, it starts disintegrating. But why is it disintegrating? In order to turn into a beautiful tree, right? If you would take this and we just let it disintegrate to some place and it's not even in the soil, so then it's just being destroyed. But if it's in the soil, then, then the right thing is happening. So not every fall is necessarily considered something that's not worth living for. Sometimes that's the beginning of something great. However, one should never allow themselves to think that, okay, I'll just go back to the way I was a year ago. That's not bad. No, if you've grown, if you've matured in your connection with God, in your relationship with God, don't allow regression to take root because that's not worth it. That's not okay. And so I think this is a personal lesson that we can take from this uh, very, very fascinating conversation here, uh, dealing you know, with all the different angles of the destruction of the, of the first tablets. Um, and essentially, we have to realize that the covenant that we have with God is a living covenant. And, and that by sticking to the mitzvahs of the Ten Commandments, it shouldn't be something that's heavy, that weighs us down, that's dead weight. On the contrary, it should make us lighter, it should make us happier, and uh, that we should be able to uh, shoulder the burden of all that responsibility in a happy way, in a joyful way, and prepare the world for the coming of Mashiach. Amen. And with that, we will conclude today's lesson. Rabbi, I had a question.